A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a wonderful season opener for you today as we look at the underlying stories of climate change, biodiversity loss, and natural systems. So my friends, once more, into the fray. I can't express how excited I am to finally be welcoming you back as we officially kick off the third season here at South of Two Degrees. Between staff moves, a brand new studio, where we may just expand into video this season, some tech refreshes, and a slight reimagining of the show, it's been delayed for, well, more than we would have liked. But we are so happy to be back. Now, before we kick this off today, for all the new listeners, here's a bit of a taste of the show regarding where we're going and where we've been with guests like His Excellency, the President of Palau, President Whips, Bill Weir of CNN, Dr. Sylvia Earle, and many, many others. First of all, we want to welcome you to Palau. Thank you for the podcast. This is the beginning. And I realize there are no more untouched places anymore. We're all so hyper-connected. There are lots of reasons for despair. And if you think that we're just doomed, then and you give up. You're part of the problem. But that's what I say. I happen to choose my problems. And and this is really like when you put that to, you know, climate and the climate crisis that we're facing right now, it's really also this. So what I'm most concerned right now in the Arctic and what I'd, I want to talk about with all sorts of different audiences to make sure that we're aware is that I think the Arctic has already crossed a tipping point. To me, at least, the saddest thought is having to explain to my kids how I caused a majestic creature to be relegated to the pages of history. Kids, listen up. Don't you let that happen. Get after the grown-ups around you, and if they're not going to do their part, then you do yours, and you'll get them to come on board. They just have to. They just have to. We all must. I mean, this is the time. We're all just made of stories. We marinate in the stories that we're told, and everything in our lives, from currencies to the borders to flags are just stories we've agreed on some are older than others they're always in constant revision we can talk about climate science we can talk about climate social sciences and we can have very serious conversations but also have a couple laughs at also our own kind of like yeah we're not perfect either we need a new phrase brian climate honesty climate honesty i love that does that sound good well on top of that Let's hit on some of the highlights of what we do. Here at South of Two Degrees, we work to bring you the latest responsibly published scientific research on climate change and all the intricate systems it touches. This is not a show on lifestyle changes. If that's your thing, be sure to check out The Guilty Greenie out of the UK by Sarah Ferris and Kate Bagby. Incredible ladies, a fun show, and not as, shall we say, sciencey as we are here. Now, to prevent your eyes from glazing over when we hit on the technical jargon, we bring in the latest techniques from the social sciences to help you better utilize the latest research. Now, outside of this podcast, we work with scientists, policymakers, and individuals 
on how to effectively communicate their research and the science behind anthropogenic climate change. And that is our commitment to you, to empower you with knowledge and equip you with the methods to communicate climate change so you can go out and change the world. Lofty enough? Okay, here's the basic version. We read scientific papers so you don't have to fall asleep just during the abstract, and then I ramble about it while taking a few tangents and making fun of myself. How's that for truth in advertising for you? Either way, let's get this party started. So in the time off, the team has been doing a bunch of research, and from that spawned the idea of today's show. You see, simply put, the most effective way to communicate is through stories. That is ingrained in our universal cultural identity. We consume them, find them relatable, easy to understand, and effective in helping us make decisions. From a scientific standpoint, I often suggest you look back to a paper written by Fisher in 1987 called Human Communication is Narration, where he discusses how humans are pre-programmed to tell stories. But today isn't about how to tell the climate change story. For that, check out episode 6 of season 2 for an in-depth breakdown. Rather, today I want to talk about the actual stories underlying climate change, biodiversity loss, and natural systems. You see, when you stare at a scientific paper, most of us see a lot of big words, complicated formulas, and a good remedy in not being able to sleep. Yet, these are all describing the natural world. I know you're probably going, really, Brian? I don't need you to tell me that. Well, Fair point, but let me take it another step. The last time you were outside, did you think about all the stories around you? Not the human ones, but the natural ones. Let's go deeper. The last time you took a walk through an old forest, snorkeled a reef, observed animals interact with their environment, or even just sat outside and watched a late summer storm blow in as I used to do as a kid in rural Oklahoma, did you just see? Or did you think about the story happening around you? And no, I'm not talking about how you're going to tell people about what you did on Instagram or TikTok. I'm talking about nature's own story that you were bearing witness to. Chances are, you didn't. But that is where I want to spend today. The reason I want to go there is because as we go further into the season, I want you to think about today's episode. I want you to go beyond just listening to me ramble, think beyond the research papers and my own words, and open your eyes and mind to the story. Now, why do we need to do this? What's the point, Brian, right? Well, the point is that teaching ourselves to see and understand these stories makes us more effective communicators, as Fisher argued 35 years ago. And we need to be more effective because look at where we're at today. According to Yale's Program on Climate Change Communication, their latest global survey found that the vast majority in 108 out of 110 countries surveyed were worried about the real and or perceived risks associated with climate change. Now, I'm not talking about if people understand it is, in fact, anthropogenic in nature, rather just if they're worried about the associated risks. More than 9 out of 10 people in Mexico, Portugal, Chile, Puerto Rico, Costa Rica, Ecuador, Panama, Peru, and Colombia all said they were worried. Here in the U.S., almost 7 out of every 10 people are worried about the risks associated with climate change. Yet here we are. 
the largest climate spending package in U.S. history just got signed into law and there was not a single Republican vote for it. Now, I'm not trying to be political here. We are a science show, not a political one. I can't stress that enough. But you need to think about this disconnect. Representatives in the U.S., the largest historical emitter of CO2 and the second largest currently, were all duly elected by their various districts and states, all 535 of them. Their job is to represent their constituents. Yet while 65% of Americans are worried about climate change, 77% think we should fund renewables and 72% believe we should regulate CO2 as a pollutant, not a single Republican voted for the bill. It passed perfectly along party lines. So what gives? Well, while science has become politicized here, and don't get me started as I try to keep my opinions out of the show, but politicizing science is no different than making math a political issue. But partial fault, partial, lies with us, the communicators, scientists, and activists. How is this the communicator's fault, you may ask? Well, the fault lies with us because we didn't play to our audience. Think of standing up and giving the St. Crispian's Day speech from Henry V to an audience at, say, a SpongeBob convention. Sure, there might be one or two that like it, but for the most part, even if you do it in SpongeBob's voice, and God help me if I get a video of someone doing that, you're missing the mark. For those of us involved in the climate fight, we need to be better at discussing what we do with others. People aren't evolved to make decisions beyond their own lifetimes. Rather, we evolved to be cautious about the sound in the bush over there. That is why, while all parents care about their children, most make sacrifices and decisions that benefit them today, not 20, 30, 50 years from now. That's just not how we are wired genetically. What then can sway people if speaking to their children's health and well-being doesn't work? Well, my friend... You've tuned into the right place because I'll tell you, what moves the dial is stories. Now, recently, I sat down for an exclusive interview with Bill Weir, widely viewed as the most knowledgeable news correspondent on climate change out there. When I asked him my opening question, he answered it not with a direct answer, but with a story. I was suddenly intrigued, interested, and invested in what was coming next. So how do we do that with climate change, biodiversity loss, and natural systems such that folks can truly understand the need to address the most existential threat humanity has ever faced? Well, we start by teaching ourselves to see the stories happening around us and to understand the complexity of the systems that surround us. Politics by nature is divisive, to say the least, but stories Stories can bridge divides. Stories can teach, and stories are much easier to communicate than legislative actions. I mean, seriously, while scientific papers can be dry to many, have you ever tried to read an actual bill from the U.S. Congress? Anyway, I digress. So today I'm going to tell you three stories. They aren't my stories, rather, they're nature's stories. And through them, we can not only see how disturbances in those systems can have massive implications, but also how you can spark something in someone else's mind when you share them, which I have a feeling you will. Let's start with one you may or may not already know. Let's start with the wolves of Yellowstone. What if I told you that wolves 
can change the course of rivers and increase bear populations. Hard to believe? Well, let me tell you the story of how this is true. Yellowstone, while established as the world's first national park in 1872, it lay in the way of westward expansion in the U.S., especially of ranchers. In order to protect livestock, predator controls were pretty widespread. In other words, hunting, poisoning, and trapping. And while this included cougars and other top predators, wolves were the main target. Even within the park boundaries, this occurred. Just between 1914 and 1926, 136 wolves were killed inside Yellowstone National Park. By the end of 1926, the wolf packs were gone. During this time, deer and elk were considered desirable species, and incredibly enough, were even fed by park rangers during harsh winters. As you can imagine, populations exploded. And without predatory pressure, the elk could graze lazily on berries, grasses, and especially young trees like poplars and willows growing along the banks of the many creeks and streams and rivers that flow through the area. Without the vegetation, the animals and birds dependent on them left. Creeks washed away increasing amounts of soil and started to meander, all because one species had been removed. But what started to happen once the wolves were reintroduced in 1995, some 70 years after being exterminated within the park? Well, the predatory pressure on the elk increased and they no longer hung out at the water's edge. This allowed the poplars and willows to grow, which they do rapidly up to about three feet a season, along with grasses and other vegetation at the river's edge. This stabilized the riverbanks and tree-dependent species returned. This included the beaver, which love poplars and willows, by the way, and they built dams creating pools where fish and amphibians thrived, in turn even bringing back bird populations. Pretty incredible, huh? But what about the bears, Brian? You said wolves coming back actually increased their populations. How the hell does that work? Well, interestingly enough, the elk spent less time grazing in the open meadows and in turn spent less time overgrazing on the wild berries that bears depend on in the fall. As a result of the wolf reintroduction, bear populations increased in the park and overall became much healthier. Amazing, isn't it? The simple removal of one species and the entire ecosystem can change. Now, this is what science calls a trophic cascade, specifically a top-down trophic cascade. And you can see this all over, not just in Yellowstone. It's the same process by which sea otter hunting actually reduces kelp forest and coral reefs are destroyed when sharks are removed. Basically, anywhere we humans said, I want or I don't want that, we pretty much screwed things up. So the next time you speak on biodiversity loss, don't think about the technical aspects when you communicate. Tell the story I just told you, and people will find it much easier to support policies that preserve biodiversity instead of ones that threaten it. Now for another story, this time about trees themselves. Instead of calmly walking through a forest, did you ever think about all the interactions around you? What if I told you that trees can communicate, feed each other, and that you can even find traces of salmon? Yeah, the fish within them. Call shenanigans? Well, understandably so, but alas, it's true. So let me open your mind to that tree out your window or the forest around the path you might have walked last weekend. 
let's start with communication. We've known for a while now that trees can communicate over distances through release of chemicals, and should you ever have the chance to watch a giraffe eating leaves on the open savanna, you can be assured they will only graze on a tree for a few minutes and then will always move upwind. Why? Well, when the tree feels, yes, feels, the giraffe eating its leaves, it releases compounds that make its leaves taste bitter, specifically by increasing tannins, as well as giving off ethylene into the air to warn other trees. Now, any tree that receives this message will in turn start to produce these bitter compounds preemptively. So to avoid this, giraffes almost always walk upwind. However, as I mentioned, that story is not new. But what is just on the cutting edge of science is understanding the mycelium or fungal formations within a forest that connect directly to the roots of trees and other plants. Now, this amazing system is called the mycorrhizal network. And this network can transfer water, carbon, nitrogen, nutrients, and minerals between any connected plants and allow those in favorable conditions to actually support other connected plants growing in areas with less favorable conditions. Gives a whole new perspective to the giving tree, doesn't it? Now, the most incredible part of this network is when you sketch it out. It looks near identical to our own neural networks. Now, you might be thinking, sure, Brian, it may look like a brain, but it's just plants. They can't think. Right? Well, my friend, this is where it gets really weird. According to the world's leading ecologist on plant communication, Dr. Suzanne Samard, they have actually found neurotransmitters flowing through this network. You heard me. They've found glutamate moving from tree to tree, and glutamate is one of our own neurotransmitters. So do they think as we think? Well, that's an incredible question that we're just starting to unfold. So the next time you walk through the woods and contemplate the trees around you, know just under your boot there is a communication network that just may be contemplating you. All right, have I creeped you out enough? Well, one more snippet in this story, and actually I think we'll have to do a full show on this later in the season, but while the last knowledge bomb may have given you a chill, now I'm just going to blow your mind. In the Pacific Northwest of North America, most of us are familiar with the iconic salmon runs as they race up river to spawn and then die. This annual run is a feast for the local fauna. Black and brown bears line the streams catching the salmon to build up their own fat reserves for winter. In the midst of this feast, many a salmon head or bones are left laying along the riverbanks and streams. Within the discarded carcass is a far from insignificant amount of nitrogen, a wonderful natural fertilizer. The carcass then breaks down and the nutrients are absorbed through the roots with the help of the mycelium that we just discussed. But here's the incredible part. According to a molecular analysis by Dr. Scott Jendi and Dr. Thomas Quinn, upwards of 70% of the nitrogen in vegetation growing along those streams is from salmon. 70%. Now, you're likely thinking, yeah, Brian, that makes sense, but we can't actually know it comes from salmon. Well, here's the great bit. We can and we do. 
You see, the isotope nitrogen-15 is found almost exclusively in the ocean and thus in fish that have spent time there. So when researchers look at the nitrogen molecules within trees and find nitrogen-15 in them, they can easily trace it back to the salmon that have been consumed by the trees. So that makes us need to rethink my earlier statement that the local fauna benefit from the annual salmon runs because the flora benefits directly as well. And considering that the salmon already come with a nice dose of sea salt, it just needs a little rosemary and it's not too different from your own meal. So there's your second story. That will likely make you rethink natural systems and that tree out of your window as it has a structure similar to your own neural network firing the exact same neurotransmitter and it enjoys the nutrients of the same seafood you enjoy as well. So ask yourself this, knowing all that, how are they so different? Okay, I promised you a third story and this one directly about climate change. More specifically, it's about the delicate balance our climate plays and the catastrophic effects upsetting that balance can have on our beautiful planet. Now, this story takes place in the northeast corner of Tanzania, just south of the Kenyan border. It's here, in the shadow of one of Africa's most active volcanoes, Oldoño Lengai, or Mountain of God in the Maasai language, that lays Lake Natron. This lake is over 1,250 square kilometers, or nearly 500 square miles, and just happens to be the most corrosive body of water in the world. With a pH of 12, it's not far off from bleach and oven cleaner, and the waters of the lake can easily burn bare skin. Here, temperatures are routinely above 40 degrees C, and it's not uncommon to see temperatures spike over 55 degrees C, or 131 degrees F. Further, Because of volcanism nearby, over 20 hot springs feed the lake along with the southern Iwaso Ningaro River. With a depth usually no more than 3 meters, water temperatures can push 60 degrees C. Sounds like hell, doesn't it? Well, you're not far off, but there's something special here that is vital to the survival of a species. In East Africa, there are approximately 2.5 million lesser flamingos. And they all come to this one lake, this caustic hell, to breed. Some travel thousands of miles just to be here. You see, the lake doesn't drain to any other body of water, so it loses its volume mainly to evaporation. It is during the most intense evaporation that the middle of the lake bed is exposed as salt islands with a moat of caustic soda water surrounding them. Here on these islands... The whole of the East African lesser flamingo population breeds and lays their eggs. Why? Well, because of the extremely caustic nature of the lake, it forms a natural barrier to predators. And the lake itself blooms red with hosts of cyanobacteria that the flamingo eat, turning not only their feathers, their trademark pink, but also their eyes a blood red. Now here is the perfect place for the birds to feed and hatch their young. But the conditions that make it so balance on a razor's edge. You see, one of the hallmarks of anthropogenic climate change is that of instability and erratic weather conditions. At Lake Natron, that could spell disaster for the lesser flamingo. Too much rain, and the lake level is not only too high for the salt islands to form, but the pH changes thus reducing the food stocks 
for them. Too little rain and the pH gets too high, and land bridges open up to the islands, allowing predators to easily take advantage of the helpless chicks. Further, when you consider some fly thousands of miles to be at Lake Natron at the right time each year, a simple shift in the annual weather patterns and the conditions the flamingos need no longer match up with the breeding season. Does this affect you? No, not directly. But what I love about this story is that it conveys the delicate balance of the choreographed play that takes place every day around us. Just the tiniest shift in the incredible natural order at Lake Natron falls apart. And while this story doesn't specifically drive people to action, I find it's a great way to get folks I speak with to think about the forces at play at a special place to them, which will then drive them to action. So there are your three stories. I want you to think about them, use them, or develop your own based on your own experiences and tell them. So the next time you find yourself in a conversation on the climate crisis, don't talk about how we're almost at 1.2 and want to avoid hitting 1.5 degrees C. Tell a story. Tell your story. Be honest and open about it, and I guarantee you will change minds. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I know we left you with a cliffhanger last season, only publishing the first half of Dr. Sylvia Earle's interview, but know we will re-release both part one as well as the highly anticipated part two next week before we continue on with the incredible research the team has put together for you. Also this season, you can now find show notes on the website southof2degrees.org in case you missed something during the show and want to revisit it at your own pace. Now, aside from checking out the latest information on the website, blog, meta, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, Do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.